This is Jay Shapiro, and welcome to the 42 Podcast, a podcast from This is 42. This is the first episode of this podcast series, and we have a live recording from the now infamous hashtag feminist conversations between Roxanne Gay and Christina Hoff Summers. It was a two-night event in Australia, and this conversation comes from the second event, which uh, was recorded at the Plenary in Melbourne, Australia on March 31st. Enjoy. I know what you're thinking. What is this penis doing on stage? <laughs> My name is Desh Amila. I'm the founder of This Is 42, thinking I'm also a filmmaker. Still doesn't answer the question. What am I doing up here? So let me tell you a story. I've been organizing events similar to this in Australia and New Zealand for closer to a decade. And we put a fair amount of thought behind these events, and part of that is thinking about who is the perfect host. We normally have a list, and when the time was right, I started reaching out to potential hosts. So I reached out to a quite famous journalist. She emailed me back in 10 minutes saying, no thanks. Okay, that's different. Then I thought, all right, next person. I emailed her. She sent me a very nice email simply saying, I would like to politely decline. Let me know if there are any other events I can host. This is unusual. When we organize these events, we got people coming out of the woodworks the moment we announce. Okay, it's okay. There's still a long list. So I emailed the next person. And you know sometimes when people, they don't want to appear rude, so they say something along the lines of, um, let's talk. I'm still waiting for that phone call. <laughs> so this is really strange now. Next person, not available. And then some people didn't even respond to me. So I kept following up. And for the first time in almost a decade, nobody wanted to host an event. No feminist wanted to host an event about feminism. So, this immigrant has to do the job that nobody wants to do. <laughs> I will be the first to admit, I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge about the subject matter. But I am a curious mind, I want to learn. <sighs> Jokes aside, I know what happens when we do not engage in difficult conversation, when we do not speak to groups of people we disagree with. See, I was born into a country of civil war. I've only known my country, Sri Lanka, as a country of war. I've seen things that nobody should see. And when the war finished, I went back and did some reconciliation work. And one thing we learned, 70% of my countrymen did not have a friend or engage in meaningful conversation with the other. When you otherize a group of people, it's easy to hate. Or 100,000 of my people died. I know it's a very serious note, but I'm simply suggesting that we need to engage in better conversation. And for thousands of years, Wurundjeri people of Kulin Nation, the custodians of this land, have had meaningful conversations. 
and with their blessing and yours, I would like to attempt to facilitate such a conversation. Sound good? Thank you so much for coming all the way to Australia to have this conversation. Uh, you two have not had this conversation in this manner. Until, well, we had a conversation two days ago, and this is the second attempt. <laughs> so thank you again. Roxanne, I want to start off with you. I want to start off with an important movement, the Me Too movement. Some say this is the beginning of the third wave of, wave of feminism. How important is Me Too for feminism? Um, you know, I think Me Too is actually important for humanity because it's about time that people who have suffered sexual violence and sexual predation are heard and get justice. And because women are the core concern of feminism, Me Too is also critical to feminism. It's about time, and it has been a long time coming. So hopefully what we'll do beyond the hashtag and beyond people bringing increased awareness to sexual violence is that we will see solutions. How do we prevent this? How do we stop men from committing these crimes and one or two women? And how do we get the justice system to respond adequately? How do we believe women instead of constantly doubting them? So hopefully that's the next step. Fantastic. Uh, what dangers lie ahead for the movement? You know, the biggest danger is fatigue. Oftentimes people are like, oh, we're still talking about this? And it's like, yeah, it's been literally a year and a few months. We have a little more time to give to this. And so I think it's really important to resist the urge to give in to this idea that people can be overly fatigued. Guess what's even more fatiguing? Dealing with this kind of bullshit. So um, I think we just have to be persistent and loud as often as possible. Christina, what do you think of the Me Too movement? Oh, I've written in favor of it, and it was a long time coming, and I agree with everything she said. People forget that there was a time when sexual harassment in the workplace was thought to be just, just the way the world is, and you know, women were just supposed to deal with it privately, until actually as more women came into the academy and began thinking about it and realizing that it was a kind of discrimination, gender discrimination, mostly against women, but sometimes men, and that it was a civil right not to be treated that way. And so we passed laws, and it was, but it took a while before it was really implemented. And even after it was implemented, even after the Supreme Court in 86 affirmed that it was an actionable violation of your civil rights, it still took a while. And then when we saw when Me Too came, there were just all of these quarters in, you know, in society where it was going on just at such a high level. So we needed this movement, and what I found exciting about it, it was a way for men and women of the 21st century to sort of rewrite the sexual social contract between the sexes. We're just going to have a higher level of respect and civility and not put up with all this crap. However... I, uh, what I worry is that this very legitimate movement, very important movement, I do see some signs that it's, it's going overboard from a very legitimate effort to improve rapport between men and women and to stop the predation into sort of policing, monitoring, micromanaging uh, uh, men and, you know, going after them for 
I mean, we have had recently, a, David Edelstein was a reporter at, uh, he was a movie reviewer at NPR. He lost his job because he put a joke on his private Facebook. Within minutes, he realized it wasn't in good taste, but it was sex, sort of sexist. It was, it was and I don't know what it was. It was unpleasant, <laughs> but he took it off immediately. Somebody got a, a screenshot and he was out. You know, a, a long career, an admirable man, but he made him that good. So I don't, I worry about, about um, destroying people for minor lapses. So this is a good moment to mention this. Roxanne, you received some backlash when you tweeted this, uh, this out about Aziz Ansari. You said, why is Aziz Ansari being lumped in with Louis C.K. and Matt Lauer? God, I wish more people did journalism uh, and writing on hashtag me too with care, which means that you, you do agree that not all who are accused have the same degree of crime. Do you uh, acknowledge the potential dangers that Christina's talking about? I don't think those dangers are real. When I was talking about Aziz and Sari, I just think that sexual predation exists on a spectrum. And when we conflate it all and act like Aziz Ansari is the same as Harvey Weinstein, we really collapse the issue and we do a disservice to people who have these experiences. The issue with Aziz, in many ways, it's far more pernicious because what happened on that date is something that I think a lot of women go through. When my friends and I were discussing it, a lot of us said, oh, that's like a Saturday night. And that's really unfortunate because we don't do enough in this culture to talk about enthusiastic consent. But I don't sit around worrying about men who face consequences for their bad decisions. No, I think we, I, I do worry about that because we, you want, I mean, feminism is supposed to be a humane movement and a movement based on basic fairness. And so when people are just kind of annihilated and excommunicated for minor lapses, I just think we have to be vigilant against that in order to protect what is so important in this movement. And I think, I think the uh, Aziz Ansari case hurt the Me Too movement. I think it lost credibility with his case. But now with these with people getting in trouble for jokes, there was a professor at a, a conference, uh, Ned, Ned Nebeau from... King's College, and there was a crowded elevator at a conference, and a woman came in, there were two women and some men, and she, and, uh, she, she had the buttons. She said, what floor, please? And then he made a stupid joke. He said, lingerie, please. And, you know, groan, like dad joke kind of thing. It was not funny. But so what? It was a dumb joke. Well, she was, she thought that it was a, a, a an insult to women, and it was an expression of patriarchal oppression. And she, she read, you know, made charges, and then he was investigated, and then he wouldn't apologize, and that he was said to be re-traumatizing re her, and it went on and on. And he's still under a cloud for a dumb remark, and I don't want the men around me to ha harass me, but I don't want them to be walking on eggshells and afraid if they. If they say one thing, you know, I'll go off. We're just seeing too much of this. I want to bring in um, <laughs> Roxanne with regards to the same matter, but there, is, there was another uh, um, hashtag that 
came out of the Me Too movement, which is believe all women. Mm -hmm. And one of the criticisms of this hashtag is that it leads to false accusation, breeds chaos uh, and mob justice, claims innocent victims and undermines social trust and teach us to doubt the evidence of our own experience. How would you respond to a claim like that? No, I, I think that's just inaccurate and I think that's a bit lazy. When we say believe all women, what we're saying is give women the benefit of the doubt and trust that women are not going to make stories about sexual assault up because it's actually really horrifying to have to deal with the shame and to have to deal with the doubt and to have to deal with a very intolerant justice system and to oftentimes have nowhere to turn. And so when we say believe all women, we're saying just give us the benefit of the doubt. Does that mean that we shouldn't vet stories? Of course not. But the reality is that we spend way too much time worrying about one or two falsely accused men and we ignore millions of women who have dealt with some degree of sexual violence in their lives. And you know, there are so many people in this world worrying about men, and I love men, I have great men in my life, but I'm going to spend my time worrying about women because historically we have not received the resources, time, attention, or consideration that we deserve, and so I, it's okay to overcorrect and strictly worry about women. So, Christina, <laughs> Christina, you're very familiar with the claim I just made because it comes from I your... I was going to say, that was very well said. Where did you get that? <laughs> it is from your 2014 Times article. So, you yeah. made that claim. And now hearing uh, Roxanne's response, it seems as a, it's a philosophical response. It's not a literal believe all women per right. se. And um, I'm going to partly agree with her and partly disagree. Part of it comes out of a history of women not being believed and a history of just be feeling completely alone and discredited and because this is a crime that happens sometimes with no, no one witnesses it but you, but you have been so profoundly harmed and there's people don't, don't take you seriously. So I, I get it. I get why they want to say believe all women or believe women and, and survivors because it's it's such a horrible thing to have to have been a victim, and then people won't believe you. However, it's also a fundamental principle of our moral and legal system that you give people the benefit of the doubt in the sense if there's not sufficient evidence, you presume them innocent, and especially if they're going to face serious losses. So we have young men in our colleges and we have a, a problem with sexual assault on our college campuses. So there has been a lot of pressure to lower the standards of what, you know, uh, for finding guilt and not to give protections of due process. And we have had just horrible cases of, of, of injustice for young men uh, who've been accused and and it's, it, you know, it's, you ask, like, people would never make this up. Well, people have, have sometimes made it up. We had uh, Jackie at the University of Virginia, who in the Rolling Stone wrote this case. And, it, you know, it was, if you, if, I, if you had dared to question her initially, people would have been so mad at you. Although a lot of people had doubts because the story was so, uh, just, uh, just hard to believe uh, that that could have happened in those circumstances that she described. But 
you were, were you had to believe Jackie. There's still people that say believe Jackie, but Jackie made it up. We had the uh, Duke lacrosse case. These are just famous cases, and and people do get the facts wrong or get mistaken identity. I mean, you know, identify the wrong person. It happens, and it's not because women are liars. It's because women are human, and human beings are fallible. Uh, Roxanne, do do you think there is a that many cases worthwhile taking into consideration the, these false accusations? Well, I mean, we can name them, so that's how rare it is. Like, literally, when we talk about false accusations, the Duke Lacrosse case and the Rolling Stone story that happened on the UVA campus, that, that's how rare it is. And so I just am not terribly worried about it. I don't think anyone should be falsely accused. I think anyone who does that does such a disservice to people who have endured sexual violence. I, I think it's abominable. But this idea that we need to engage in due process when due process has never served victims of sexual assault is really frustrating because it's like, oh, this is how much we respect men. We're going to give them due process. But meanwhile, women, it's like, oh, no, what were you wearing? How much alcohol did you have? Uh, did you flirt too much? Did you ask for it? And there's no due process there. And so let's be consistent and let's be sure that we're talking about the exact same thing for men and for women. Um, because right now, the justice system bends over backwards to help men. Like, look at the Stanford swimmer case where he got six months, basically, and was able to go on about his life uh, because he did it, but the, he was a good young man. Uh, men are going to be okay. They really are. And I think it's important to remember that. It's not to say, let's run over them with a bulldozer, but... <laughs> no, let's not. Not today. But, you know, they're going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. Some of the, There are many, many more cases, and I would urge everyone to look at a... There's a website that was started by mothers of wrongly accused young men. And it, it, there are now over 100 cases. They've gone to court. And it, it, in the, it used to be the case that judges, if someone sued a university, American judges tended to defer to the university. They're not anymore because there's... there's they're, they're appalled by the procedures where young men have been railroaded, sometimes not even, you know, they're accused of something, they're, they're sometimes not told exactly what the charges are, they go into these procedures, they're marked already as predators, their names are out there very often, and they're told they can't have a lawyer, they can't, it is, it's a horrible thing. There was a judge in Massachusetts that was reading about a case at Amherst College and he said it was like something out of the Salem witch trials. Now, I think we can do better than that. So you, you've also compared this, you used the term rape hysteria, describing what's happening at, at uh, American campuses. And you've also at one point compared this to the child abuse hysteria of the 80s, which turned out to be a conspiracy and a hoax. Is it really a fair comparison? What, the part that I'm comparing is that in the 80s, there was a, a, a kind of panic about the abuse of children in daycare centers. And then it got more and more elaborate by the diabolical cults. 
it were apparently had taken over a number of daycare centers, and there were, it, it, and then there were numbers going around that uh, something like 50,000 children had disappeared from American streets and so forth. So people were seeing that and became terrified about their kids and about daycare. And so, and it turned out that it took years to sort it out. But they, these children would see psychologists who would sort of you know, they would have recovered memories of things, and finally, well, first of all, there were not 50,000 children disappearing from the streets. It was, a, it was a fake statistic that got into the echo chamber, and they found that children, you could, children were suggestible, and they were um, planting these memories, and people people's lives were destroyed. To be accused of something like child abuse, and, and then no way to defend yourself. And the more they defended themselves, the guiltier they seemed. And it was a, just a kind of nightmare chapter. In, in, uh, and it was, it, it, Masha Gessen is, was writing in, the, in New Yorker about soon after Me Too. And she brought up the phrase moral panic because she was thinking about panics around gays. And there was a period in America, it was, it was called the Lavender Menace, and how gay people were working in the State Department, and they were communist, and it was mixed up with their, they, they might be communists, and, and it was a terrible thing, people, you know, false accusations. And it's just, a, it's always a danger. And, and the worse the crime is, you know, of course we want to solve it, but we've got to stick to our tradition of respecting due process, and yes, treat anyone that comes with an accusation with dignity and concern and understanding, but also realize that the person accused, there's a chance he or she is innocent, and we have to respect that that right to basic fairness. I want to um, talk about, your last uh, book is not that bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture. What do you mean by rape culture? You know, rape culture can mean a lot of different things, and that was actually what I was trying to understand and define with the anthology when I initially proposed that I wanted to solicit cultural criticism about what does it mean to live in a world where the phrase rape culture exists. But in general, it, it means that we live in a world where oftentimes women believe that it's a question of when rather than if they're going to deal with some form of sexual violence. It's a world where women have to worry about their personal safety in ways that really are unfair because we should be able to have the same kinds of bodily autonomy that men do. And so the anthology was supposed to look at that, but I opened up submissions and received 330 submissions, and of those, 300 of them were testimony. And I realized, oh my goodness, we're not in a place where we can engage in thoughtful cultural criticism yet because people still need to write their sort of stories about what they've been through. And this was before the Me Too hashtag that I um, opened up submissions and started soliciting content. And in the end, we did put together a very thoughtful book uh, engaging with this idea of rape culture, but it was not the book I originally intended. Christina, I want to bring you back because you mentioned that uh, in a few interviews that uh, the statistic that people tend to use that one in five uh, people are seriously sexually assaulted uh, or raped on is, campus on campus yeah. is is, a, is an incorrect data set. The actual number is about one in fifty-two, and obviously you also don't necessarily think there is a rape culture per se. Uh, but if the number is one in fifty-two, there's roughly about twenty-one million uh, students in America. So 
if I do the maths according to 1 in 52, which is what you mentioned, that's about 400,000 serious sexual assaults and rapes. That sounds like a rape culture. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> hold the applause. Hold the applause because he got... He, it, he got the math wrong. It, you, but first of all, you have to divide the half or a female, and then it's also the study. That sure, the, but that means it's 200,000. Yeah, but, but still, it, it, it wasn't a study of all students. It was a study of people most vulnerable. Uh, it was uh, young women between the ages of 18 and 24 uh, who are in, in, enrolled in college. And they looked at that population, and it was a population of, of 5 million. Now, what it, it, so it comes out to 30,000, okay? That's still too many. It's still a frightening number. And so what I say is, all right, let's figure out what is the best policy? What can we do to, to bring this number down? Now, the good news is when you talk about women have to be, we, we want more safety. We do, and what is wonderful, but we're nowhere near a solution, is that the numbers are going down. And if you look at the United States, the, uh, well, all violent crime is going down, but the numbers of rape are going down. So, you know, we want to figure out, all right, we're doing something right. What's bringing it down? On campus, though, whatever the numbers are and whatever, however we're going to define the violation, there's just a lot of unhappiness and misery, especially, mostly among young women, of things just going wrong or feeling violated or being violated and genuine crimes. All of that is real. So what do you do? Now what I found, I tried to find like what are, what's working? And a group of scholars have come together and they're now sort of reaching um, consensus that even though we, we, because we've tried a lot of things, people have been trying to solve this problem for going on three decades. And, you know, we try things, and we have, uh, you know, bystander intervention, and that was recommended by the White House and a special counsel on what to do about college uh, sexual assault. And it, it, it's had limited success. It's had some success, but not... It, they, they can't find that it's had a measurable success. Um, just teaching people... Well, they have found one thing, at, and you have scholars... At, um, sociologist at the University of uh, Oregon who's been working on this, Charlene Sen at uh, a Canadian University, and several researchers, they've come together and said the best thing to do, and it, it, it's not, it, just be, bear with me, because it's not the final, it's not, it's gonna, 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 we, we need more, they say we need more, but they say if you want to get the numbers down, and any of you who have daughters, uh, you know, or friends, and you're worried about them, go and look at uh, this, what I'm about to describe. It's been described in, in Vox, you know, liberal outlets in the United States. Uh, the Cut in New York Magazine, a, a women writer gave it a very favorable review. Now, it does involve training women. I know, I know. They, they say over and over again, it's, it's the best we've got right now. But the kind of training they give them, when I read it, I, I wished I'd had that training uh, because it doesn't just protect you from, it, it, bring down, it brings down the number of rapes uh, on college campuses. It teaches young women a, a kind, it's part self-defense. It's actually called empowered self-defense. And it gives you a, a sort of uh, lessons about situations to be leery of 
and how to protect, and there's also some, it goes back to the 70s, we had this, you know, where you get, you learn some self, <laughs> some self-defense, they're bringing it back, and they are apologetic, both of these women and others say, we're sorry, but this is the best we have right now. We, and they want other things? You look so skeptical. Uh, I am, I, because... Uh, <laughs> okay, if I told you that you, you may not like it, sure. but your sister, it, it, it cuts in half the chances of predation, would you tell her about it? And look, that's the thing, <laughs> people hesitate. Let me, let me bring in Roxanne here. Roxanne, where, where do you sit it's just insane that we're okay with saying the best we can come up with is teaching women how not to be raped. Like, we can go to the moon and we can send Voyager through space, but the best that we can do when it comes to sexual violence is put the burden of responsibility on women. When really what we need to be doing is, is teaching young men from a very early age not to commit acts of rape and sexual violence. It's about, you know, teaching enthusiastic consent from a very young age. And I believe starting with preschoolers. And it starts with age-appropriate ways of, no, you don't have to hug that weirdo. And it's okay to say that. And teaching children that they have a right to decide what happens to their bodies. And then the older the children get, the more advanced the enthusiastic consent education becomes but we just have to do better we have to raise the bar and we cannot be complacent and just be okay with what this study shows because it, it, it's only one study no actually it, it's several studies and they've even tried it in in uh, there it's there sorry it's, okay okay let's let's get this <laughs> you know there there may be several studies but the main study, the, it just, it's too narrow and it just does not address the actual problem. And until we deal with what causes sexual predation, setting aside the like level of serial killer, because there's nothing you could do to prevent a serial killer from serial killing, but there's a whole lot that we can do to address sexual predation on college campuses. And there's a whole lot we can do to educate people and men in particular about what no means even though we should like even I'm from I'm 44 and in the 80s we were like no means no and no means no but it's still like 2019 and we're having these conversations even now so clearly we need to go beyond no means no because people are not getting that memo um, we just need to do better and I'm just not going to be complacent and I'm not going to be content with saying oh we have to just teach young women. The researchers uh, agree that it's unfortunate, but you say, well, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do other things on campus. Do what? Now, it, they've tried, and they, they are sorry about this, but they say just to be safe, you can do these things. And it's actually, it is about empowerment. It's not the old-fashioned, you know, oh, you have to be careful what you wear and what you drink. That's not what this is about. It actually teaches young women a kind of... Uh, the psychology of uh, risk, and they go through some scenarios. What would you do here? What would you do there? They they role play, and then uh, they teach them a little how legitimate it is to, um, you know, understand what your sexual desires are, and what and that you and be very that they have to be very clear about setting limits. It 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 does. 
and it works. It doesn't work 100 percent, but it's it's the it's the first program that we've seen. Well, just I I, I mean we can go on about this, but I would just suggest you look at uh, the article about uh, empowered self-defense in uh, Vox and at uh, New York Magazine, I think it was in 2015, and the authors of these studies are saying the same thing you are. They're, they're saying it to themselves. We wish that we're the only thing, but y if you read it, you'll, you'll... Christina, you've mentioned that the gender pay gap is a myth. Uh, what do the, you uh, mean the, by that? <laughs> Well, what I mean is that the idea that, on average, you know, um, a man is paid, tw you know, 25 cents more, 23 cents more uh, for the same work as a woman, um, there's just no evidence of that. In, in, in the, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. No, can I explain why? Can I explain? And sure. and you know, jeering in an idea or clapping at an idea doesn't make it true or false. What matters is the evidence. So let's look at the evidence. If, and, and even feminist economists agree with this, if you look at the gap in, in the uh, workplace, what you find is you have to account for relevant differences and, and, and take into account variables. For example, the wage gap in the United States is, it varies, but people usually say, you know, women earn 76 cents for every dollar. White and women. White women earn 76 cents on the dollar. Yes, and, and uh, the highest earners in the, are Asian men, and the gap between Asian men and white men is bigger than the gap between men and women. So why, why would that be? Is it, is it because there's a, the system is rigged in favor of Asian men? Well, actually, what, what you do are the proper controls, like what... Did what, how many years of education did they have? What did they study in college? You do that with men and women, and the, the, the gap begins to narrow. And is it because employers are cheating them out of their salary? That we don't find evidence for. What we find evidence is that men and women, on average, make different decisions. For example, college majors, the highest paying college majors, like electrical engineering or petroleum engineering, you find far more men in that major. For women, you find a lot going in, women going into psychology, sociology, early childhood education. Those jobs may be very fulfilling, but they don't pay as much. And they're just, you know, as I said, more women. You yeah. mentioned uh, data and stats. So let me show you something. This is from the World Economic Forum. This is an extensive study. And this is a 10-year study. And there is definitely... Uh, you know, this is obviously the summary, but I've read the whole study. It seemed to really suggest, and World Economic Forum is an apolitical organization, it's, it's clear that there is some sort of a gap, and it is that 20 cents mark globally. So... Now you're going global or the United States? Global. Global. Absolutely. All right, because there's a different story. In different countries, it's sure. different. And, but if we can understand the United States, we can understand other places. There are... I didn't... I don't... I didn't deny there are places that okay. have systemic bias. There are countries that are absolutely patriarchal. The United States, the United, 
the United States is Come on, let's. is uh, a society where women and men have achieved equality before the law. And if you if your employer, it be I mean, there's all kinds of data out there, but the pay gap is not d under dispute. And there are all kinds of reasons why women don't necessarily go into petroleum engineering, and those reasons have everything to do with misogyny and the fact that women are not allowed to succeed in these fields. It's incredibly difficult to go into engineering. It and is difficult. I have some expertise in this. My dad's an engineer, and I went to an engineering university to get my PhD, where it was 77% male. And so we have all of these systemic biases that push women into certain fields and that make other fields incredibly inhospitable. Like, I teach at a state university, so everyone's salaries are easy to find. And so even when you control for education and um, pretty much everyone has a PhD, um, within fields, men make more. And so the pay gap is not this imagined thing. The pay gap is very real here in Australia, it's real in the United States, it's real in Japan, and we have to start demanding that this be a thing of the past and suggesting that oh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, and that's why women make less, is just so insulting. But and it doesn't take into account other things like race and ethnicity. So while 77 cents to the dollar is the statistic in the United States for white women, 54 cents is what Latina women make on the dollar. And so we have to also look at how women from non-white races and ethnicities are dealing with an even greater pay gap and it, it just cannot be wished away with this idea that the gap is imaginary. It isn't. Uh, uh, for, for Christina's point, actually, uh, Roxanne, I, I found a study, and this is not a global study, I couldn't find a global study, the National Bureau of Economics uh, Research in Denmark suggests that the arrival of children creates a gender gap in earnings around 20%. Mm -hmm. So there are some studies that somewhat suggest that uh, Christina may have a point. How, how do you r respond to a study like that? Does, is that just relate to just one country? No, the reality is that when women take time off to have a child, as we are the only people on earth that can carry children, there are repercussions in the workplace. And it, it's not women alone who are making these decisions, and it's not women alone who are self-fertilizing. It's women alone who are dealing with the burden of having children. And because when they return to the workplace, oftentimes, they are months behind or years behind their peers because they've had to take time off. And oftentimes they can never recoup that time. So we can say that it's women's choices, but it's women's choices because women are the ones that have children. If men had children, they would suffer from a pay gap. But that's it. Well, I agree with some of that. It turns out, and there is a Pew Research Center, but there's also this a sociologist in England, uh, Catherine Hakim, that looks at the preferences of mothers and fathers. And she found that in, throughout Western Europe, she studied mainly Europe, um, women uh, who have children, about 60%, she calls them adaptives, want to withdraw somewhat from the workplace. The, the ideal is working part-time. About 20% of women just want to stay full-time, full-time careers, about 20% would like to stay home full-time. And then in the middle, you have the adaptives. And she just says these are just, these 
appear to be women's preferences. When they, they have the children, they withdraw somewhat from the workplace, and they do pay a price for that. So, but when you add all of that up, if you look at women, uh, men, men work more hours per week on average in the United States, so uh, they are more likely to have been in the workplace continuously and to have studied or gone into fields, higher paying fields, and you do all those controls and the wage gap, the unexplained gap, you know, it narrows to the point of vanishing. And there's a, a great program uh, with economists, and they had uh, this uh, sort of feminist economist from um, Harvard University, um, Carla Golden, and she came on and saying a lot of the same things that I'm saying, and she said that um, even if men and women, you know, switched jobs, and you know, men started doing all of women's jobs, but she said that the men would might still earn more, in, in, in because they uh, because what women do when you know have a slightly more tenuous connection to the workplace. Even in Sweden and Denmark, they have a gap, and they keep they find. Uh, you know, the women are the ones that take the maternity leave, and so they, then they had paternity leave to get, you know, more encouragements for the for the fathers to do it, parental leave, but still the mothers were more likely to take it. So now they're coming up with ways to try to keep the mothers, or, you know, get the fathers to take equal amounts. So, you know, uh, maybe there's a, on average, you know, there are, it's not um, because of discrimination, it might just be preferences. So how would you answer, say, for example, the, I want to get, an, I want to pick an American example. The American women's soccer team is rated number one in the world. And the American men's team is rated 25 in the world. But the American men's team gets a substantial amount of money. And you can't, cannot attribute that to the number of people that watch it because the women's final was watched by 26.7 million and the men's final was watched by 26.5. So how would you, there's still somehow women are getting paid less for doing the same thing as soccer. Yeah, I, as I said, there, there could be that they're just being mistreated. However, if you, uh, if you look at sports in general, like people, if you look at the, you know, uh, the NBA or the WNBA, a big gap in what the male players and the female players are paid. But that just has everything to do with just how much money the men's teams bring in. And there's a big difference in men's basketball and women's basketball, even though they're doing the same thing in, in, in the sense of playing the game. But the market, it, it, it's, it's not comparable. Now, I think with soccer, the men are in the men's league, so they probably are benefiting from all of the money that comes from men's soccer in throughout the world. So they're in that league, they, they're just beneficiaries. And the women are probably in a women's league, and they get paid less and because throughout the world. Rosanne, do you want to respond to that one? I mean, it's literally a pay gap. I, so... <laughs> There's, that's the pay gap. Like, who cares what the reasons are? The pay gap is literally there. And actually, professional sports is a really good example of the pay gap. Because women in the WNBA, generally, during the off-season, come over to Europe, Australia, uh, China to play ball because they have to supplement their incomes versus men who are making these $140 million four-year contracts. Um, 
And the soccer team example is actually really one of the most stark examples of the pay gap, and it's one of the most egregious because the women's team is so successful and so popular, and the men's team, the U.S. football team, just they can't play at all. <laughs> they're not good. And yet, because they're men, they get pay. And in fact, the women's team has tried various forms of striking, especially in the past year, to little avail. And it just shows how rigid, as someone in the audience pointed out, the patriarchy is. And that even when women are at the top of their game, quite literally, it's still not enough for them to be paid an equitable wage. So I want to stay... I, 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 just, I just would say one thing. That, that there, we'd have to look into it, and there may be an explanation. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, men's basketball and women's basketball, they're not... There's, it's... Leagues apart. I mean, the 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 idea that it's leagues apart because the NBA has been around for much longer and has gotten so much more material support than the WNBA. The no, WNBA continues no. to struggle for funding because people don't think when people are interested in women's basketball, it's misogyny at play. It's not that no. it's a different game. It's, it's that people don't care. It's a different game. The, it, the male basketball players they play at a it's a Promethean you know. <laughs> kind of competition. I mean, look, you may like it uh, uh, to watch women's basketball. Most people don't. They can hardly get an audience in the United States. And they say, oh, it's not enough advertising. I'm sorry, but lesbians love the shit out of women's basketball. <laughs> uh, the Los Angeles Sparks generally sell out their games. All of this, like, there is not a, a more, there is not a more devoted fan base. There is plenty of audience for women's basketball teams. Okay, I, I want well. to cover uh, a bit more ground, so I want to stay within the realm of sports. Roxanne, there is a reasonable amount of controversy about transgender women taking part in women's only sports. Mm -hmm. I want to give you an example. Um, there's a transgender MMA fighter, Fallon Fox, uh, during a fight with Tamika Brent beat her during uh, the first round, and Brent suffered a concussion, an orbital bone fracture, and she had to have seven staples in her head. Mm -hmm. And she later went onto social media to say, I fought a lot of women and have never felt the strength that I felt in a fight as I did last night. I can't answer whether it is because she was born a man or not because I'm not a doctor. I can only say I've never felt so overpowered in my life, and I'm an abnormally strong female in my own right. What do you think about transgender athletes competing in women's only sports? I think transgender women are women, and we can't create a new sports category for them. So, I think that the world just has to get over it and get on board with it. Uh, boxing and MMA is hard and sometimes you're going to get the shit kicked out of you and it has you know this idea that transgender women can't participate in sports I think that's a real dangerous road to go down I really do and because it also lumps in people like Castor Samaya who is a woman and who people consistently try to push out of track and field because she has a chromosomal anomaly and so I think it opens the door in ways that we should not be engaging in at all. And uh, we have to believe transgender women are women because they are. And that has to be applied across the board. It just does. 
Christina, yes. would you like to respond to that? Yes. Uh, this is an issue that is suddenly come to the fore, and I'm withholding, you know, absolute. I don't have enough information to have a full opinion. I know that there are uh, female athletes that worry that it, women, it was very, you know, women did fight hard uh, for Title IX and to have opportunities and scholarships and all sorts of things that go with the glory of, of sports. And there's a chance this will mean the end of women's sports. And they, 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 won't, they won't, they'll be, I mean, look, men have, uh, even if you transition you, and you become a woman, you still have a superior, you know, upper body strength. There are differences on average, and that's why we had separate male and female teams in the first place. So I, but here's what I would say. I don't know, and Roxanne made some good points that I, I could agree with. What I worry about is we're not even able to debate it, and as soon as someone like Navrat Trelola, the, the, the tennis player, came out uh, and she was just attacked by people because she, she didn't have the right opinion and she was worried about the, the end of women's tennis, I think that we should at least agree that we need a free and open debate respect on all sides, and maybe there could be some a compromise uh, where people wouldn't feel like, you know, where trans people would feel respected and women would uh, feel that they weren't losing. From sports, I want to tackle an entirely different subject. Christina, you've called abortion a fundamental moral dilemma. What do you mean? Well, what I mean by that, and, I, and now I'm talking as a philosophy professor of many years, and I would teach uh, different issues where there was a collision of fundamental values. Because, and I, I overall, I am, I've always been pro-choice, but I understand that some people would see it differently, particularly if they are religious and they believe that the fetus is a person, they feel that it is murder. And in the United States, it doesn't go like men versus women. It, it, there are a lot of women that are pro-life. It's a, it's a mix of men and women. It's about even. It's about the same. And in the United States, it's, it's not going to be... We're, we're never going to get to a point where we're absolutely sure it's you know an un, unambiguously good, and nobody's ever going to convince me it's unambiguously bad. And one reason is because there's a principle... A fundamental principle of respecting the autonomy of a woman, you know, to determine what happens to her own body. But then there's a the principle of the sanctity of life and people who believe that the fetus is, is a human life, um, especially in the later months, they feel differently. And so that's when you get a dilemma, when you've got these two just fundamental principles. You have to make a decision for yourself, and overall, I do come down on the side of choice. But I, I can respect people who are pro-life. I have friends who are pro-life, and I don't agree with them. I don't completely understand it because I'm not <clears throat> particularly religious, and I think it's mostly religious people, not exclusively. Well, but the majority of America supports abortion. Uh, yeah, they, a majority support it uh, for the first trimester. If it gets to be further on... I have the Pew Research data, which clearly shows that majority of Americans support abortion in all cases. Really? Yes. 
uh, views have been birthed by religion? Oh. Um, that's on, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a very big study, but the Pew data shows that Americans, majority Americans, this is 2018. Illegal in all cases, legal in all, in all cases. cases. And even within uh, conservative uh, arms, not necessarily the Bible Belt. But um, uh, so, w w with that, I want to uh, ask Roxanne, where, where do you stand in this debate? I'm pro choice, and I think everyone should be pro choice because if you don't like abortion, don't get one. It's a personal choice, and it comes down to the autonomy of women and as long as our bodies can be legislated we're not free as long as a governing body of mostly men can tell women they can or cannot have an abortion even though it shouldn't be that way it, it, we just have an incredible problem and as a feminist I just think I, I believe that there are lots of different ways that we can be feminists and that we do not have to agree on everything, but I do think we have to agree on the freedom of choice. And we have to also make sure that we're being unambiguous about supporting, supporting abortion, because oftentimes people love to distance themselves from the act of abortion and say, I, I reproductive freedom and choice, which are all good things. But what we really are talking about is that a woman has a right to end a fetus if she does not want to carry a pregnancy to term. And we have to support that right. And, uh, you know, I respect people's faiths. I'm Catholic. I absolutely get it. I understand why people have respect for the sanctity of life. But it's always the sanctity of everyone's life but the women who carry babies to term that we're worried about, as if women are simply meant to be vessels. And so I'm more concerned with women than fetuses. There was also a comment you made, Christina, where very few Americans want abortion on demand. What do you think will happen to, say, American society or society in general if abortion on demand was an actual thing? Oh, you're talking about, uh, well, I think what you're quoting is um, somewhere, I said that for late-term abortions, they call it yes. partial birth abortion or whatever. Um, I, don't, I don't get involved in that controversy because it, it, it's very rare that someone wants an abortion at the last you know, week or something, and it's usually because of some catastrophic situation. But who knows? It, it, it makes a lot of Americans, men and women, just nervous at the idea that we wouldn't be protective of uh, a fetus that, that could be viable if born, because prematurity goes back now. You can, you can survive uh, you know, a premature child. It, it keeps going back, and the idea that it could survive outside the womb, um, but that we're going to kill it at six months or kill the child, whatever. <laughs> Uh, is just distressing to people. It's just, again, I say it's, it, people's intuitions, my intuitions go in different directions. Yes, I mean. But it's a really disingenuous argument to suggest that there is literally anyone in the world who is at 40 weeks and thinking, ah, I might as well abort this child. Like, that's not happening. And that people keep presenting this as the worst possible scenario like at 40 weeks, at 37 weeks, at 36 weeks, at anywhere from basically 28 weeks on, the fetus can be viable. So when people have abortions then, it is, as you said, for catastrophic reasons. It's not, oh, I really don't think I can support a child. It's truly that they need to. And so 
But even if they didn't, it's not our business. We should not be worrying about this. It's the woman's choice. We, so we can have all of these elaborate moral dilemmas and philosophical arguments about what if, what if this one woman does this terrible thing? It's none of our business. We have to be able to trust women. Anytime we morally equivocate and decide that there is some scenario in which women should not have control over their bodies, we are doing a disservice to women. Christina, for, to, to, to that point, there is actually an interesting case study, the Dutch system. In the Netherlands, they do have abortion on demand, and they have the world's lowest number of abortions. So it, it sort of, it seems like it kind of goes against that sort of notion of this worry of the very late-term abortion. Yeah, the Dutch also have one of the best um, just sex education programs, and they're more just open about everything. So it, wouldn't that then go towards Roxanne's point where, you know, we, abortion is freely available, but at the same time there's an educational system behind it that means then, you know, the 40-odd percent of Americans who don't agree with it, they're wrong. Well, it's not even about abortion on demand that is correlated to low abortion rates. Denmark has universal health care. They have a basic income. So pretty much everyone can trust that they can afford to bring a child into the world. One of the primary reasons women have abortions is because of economic factors, because they cannot support a child. And so when you look at those statistics, you have to also recognize that there are social programs in place. There is a safety net that in many parts of the world does not exist. Um, and the United States, of course, is one of the biggest countries where the social network doesn't really exist. Um, even though we would love to talk about how great we are. So before we go to the next question, I want to show a video. Uh, this is from Iran. And when it comes to compulsory hijab in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, the whole world keeps silent. And it, Iranian women, in their fight against compulsory hijab, they are alone. They are on their own. And when you say it's not true, I'm going to give you an example. There were three female politicians from Netherlands. They went to Iran the same day when one of the Women of White Wednesday's movement put the headscarf on a stick and waved it in public, Shafarak Shajarizadeh, when she got arrested, the same day there were three female politicians from Netherlands in Iran obeying compulsory hijab law without challenging it. And the female politician from Sweden, they were very you know, well-known when they started to publish their picture to mock President Trump's cabinet. It was full, you know, the female picture and mocking the picture of uh, President Trump's cabinet, which were all male-dominated. I was like, I love this picture. It's a good way to criticize a male-dominated cabinet. But what happened? The same feminist went to Iran, the same uh, ministers. In Iran, they obeyed compulsory hijab laws in front of the president. I said to myself, well, when it comes to America, they were trying to say women and men are equal. But when it comes to Islamic Republic, they were trying to send another message. Well, men are more equal than women. So the female politician who go and visit to Iran, the tourists, the athletes, actress, all of them, when they go to my beautiful country, they say that this is a cultural issue. We wear it out of respect to the culture of Iran. Let me be clear with you. Calling a discriminatory law as part of our culture 
this is an insult to a nation. There's a criticism uh, for feminists in the West that they're, they're not doing enough to help their counterparts in countries like Iran. How do you respond to that? Um, I think it's fair. The, um, th that young woman, I just love her. That's Misay Aligiad. And she has, um, she had fled Iran, and now she has something called My Stealthy Freedom, and she will... Uh, My Stealthy... F oh, yeah, okay, you're right. Uh, yes, uh, Yasmin Mohammed is also part of uh, My Stealthy Freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, the, but uh, she's doing this... So women can take off the hijab. They have mandatory veiling in Iran, which is, is horrible if you don't want to be veiled, and many women do not. And so they take off the hijab, and then they film themselves in the streets of... Tehran dancing, and she posts them. And I just urge you to go to her website, and these videos are just so delightful, but, but also frightening, because right now, like the leading, uh, one of the leading civil uh, women's rights lawyers has just been sentenced to you know, 38 years in jail and, and lashings, 147 lashings. I mean, it's, it's awful what's happening. So there are pressing women's rights issues in many countries around the world and often these leaders come to the United States and and ask for our support and I know uh, I work with two Iranians uh, sisters that run a women's rights human rights groups uh, the Buraman Foundation and there'll be demonstrations something dreadful uh, you know a real crackdown on women in Iran and there'll be demonstrations in Washington she says in these the sisters Roya and Ladan Buramand will say to me, it's only Iranians that care. No one else cares. And they, they just wonder, where are the women's groups? There are some efforts, but they're very limited. And I think that should be um, an important focus of contemporary feminism, is making common cause with the freedom fighters across the globe. <laughs> Roxanne, how would you like to respond to that criticism? You know, I think it's fair, but I think it's more complicated than that. I think oftentimes, historically, Western intervention in other parts of the world has ended up with colonialism. And it's very presumptuous for me as an American woman to decide that I know what's best for Iranian women, for Saudi Arabian women. I can support them as best I can. I can amplify their voices, but I think that sometimes you have to know when to lead and sometimes you have to know when to follow. And so I think most feminists, I would hope all feminists, quite frankly, are absolutely ready and able and willing to join this fight. But I don't think it's our place to lead. And I feel the same way about people coming to Haiti and deciding that they know what we need in Haiti, um, where my parents are from. and where I tend to do the most of my sort of activist work. I do think everyone should care and join in our struggle in ways that we tell you to, but uh, I don't think you should come and decide that you know what's best for Haitian women. I want to push back a little on that. Basic human rights are basic human rights Correct. regardless of what it is. And if a country is oppressing a group of women, mm -hmm. uh, don't you think that the, the platforms that's provided, uh, that's platforms you have or feminists like you have, you should really voice that opinion? Yes, absolutely. I just don't think we should lead 
because okay. I think Iranian women know best what they need. I think that but, I can uh, support it and use my platform in support of that 150%, 200%, absolutely. I think but, the challenge is because when they raise their voice, they go to jail. Yes, absolutely, and that's why I can do it on their behalf, absolutely, and not go to jail. Roxanne, what does the future of feminism look like to you? I don't know. That's a really good question. We think about it a lot, but I would hope that the future of feminism is such that we move beyond basic conversations about our women people and move into more complex conversations and actual like solutions like how do we once and for all get rid of misogyny how do we do that and how do we free women up to truly thrive without having to deal with the ills of misogyny time and again both in the western context and beyond and I would love for us to get there because it just seems like we're having some of the very same conversations now that we had 50 years ago and even 100 years ago. And that doesn't seem terribly productive. Okay. So you know, what are you fighting for as a feminist right now? I think what's exciting about the Me Too movement and really just what I see in, in the, among millennials and I Jenners or whatever we're calling younger younger people. Uh, there's a r real possibility for um, just reaching a totally new level of equality and respect between men and women. But I think it's something that um, men and women should do together. And I do worry about. I sometimes see signs of female chauvinism as a replacement for male chauvinism, and I hated male chauvinism, but I don't like female chauvinism. Or f and there is something called misandry, like there is misogyny. And there's a lot of, even, a lot of misandry out there, just uh, treating men and in, in, in thinking of men as just a kind of monolith and, and you know, toxic, and masculinity is a pathology, and just a lack of understanding and compassion. We need, it, we need to see one another as human, and as equals, and I think this generation can get us there, but, and it's still early uh, for you know, a new wave of feminism, but that's my hope. It's, it's going to be about men and women coming together. We're not two separate teams competing for different trophy. We're on the same team, and our futures are, we build it together as equals. Okay. <laughs> now, we're about to open uh, the Q&As, and please Keep it short, because we have a lot of people who have questions. Please make sure it's a question, not a thesis. Just out of respect for everybody else that's here. Please keep it respectful. Melvin, you've been amazing so far. Sydney was something else, so I hope you keep it respectful. Hi. Um, uh, on International Women's Day, our Prime Minister said that we want women to move up in the world, but not at the expense of others, which he meant not at the expense of men which he was rightly sort of denounced for. But that sounds like your brand of feminism, which, um, which is protecting men. You've spent a whole lot of time here protecting men who already have actually a lot of superiority. So I disagree with your thing about how men and women can do this together because men have all the power and we don't. So I'd like to ask Roxanne to please... Um, <laughs> can I defend myself? I'd like to ask Roxanne, actually, to please give us a last word on what the feminism of the future holds, because what we've heard um, 
has not been intersectional. Most of the questions were not intersectional. They're about sort of just basic feminism, but not actually addressing intersectionality and feminism, mm -hmm. which is important. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, until we stop worrying about the men, we're not going to get anywhere with feminism. And the reality is that people seem to continue to assume that when we elevate women and achieve equality for women, we're taking something away from men. And so we have to move past that mindset. And again, we have to move beyond this sort of feminism 101 type question and really get into, I don't know, feminism 301, where we're thinking about intersectionality. I don't like to use the word, but I love to use the concept, which is that not all women are created equal. And so we need to be thinking about what can we do to best serve women of color and queer women and women with disabilities and transgender women and how do we serve these women within the feminist project because we haven't been serving them historically and we're even not for serving them now. Like right now we hear a lot of conversation about intersectionality, but it never goes anywhere. People say the word and they think they're somehow doing the work. And so in the future of feminism, we will stop saying the word and just actually do the work. Christina, I'm sure you're going to get a fair few questions. Shall we go to the next question yeah, sure, or do sure. you want to comment on it? No, it's okay. No. Okay, please. Um, I think that Roxanne answered my last question because finally disability was mentioned and uh, in this conversation the host um, didn't even think of disability. Why is disability forgotten in so many feminist conversations? That's a really good question and disability is ignored in feminist conversations in the same ways historically that race, gender, expression, ethnicity, like people think we have to deal with the able-bodied, heterosexual, middle-class and wealthy white women first and then we'll get to everyone else. And as a culture, beyond feminism, we don't deal with disability well. And I think that it's one of the biggest issues that we're currently facing in feminism, that we leave an entire population behind while talking about equality, when oftentimes we hold events in spaces that are not accessible. And we talk about issues in ways that don't take into account disability. And I, it's just an oversight, and there's no excuse for it. And um, hopefully we all get better about addressing disability because people with disabilities do live in this world. Thank you. <laughs> I will come and grab it. Thank you. Please. So feminism has increasingly been problematized like you have tonight, Roxanne, um, and black, other black feminists, um, but not considering how gender intersects with race and class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Um, in, in doing so, it marginalizes people in our society. And today is Trans Day of Visibility. And I'd like to ask if, is feminism enough? Um, or do we need a new movement which doesn't continue to leave people behind? Because even with the language being used tonight, we're talking about only women have children and like we have non-binary people or other trans women or other trans people sitting in the crowd mm -hmm. saying that, oh, okay, only um, women can have children, and I'm standing here as a non-binary person being like, hey, I have a uterus, I can also have a child. Mm -hmm. So how can we also move beyond just thinking about women as having uteruses and exploring gender outside of that? Yeah, we just have to get better. And is feminism enough? 
I don't know. Feminism hasn't historically been enough, so I do not know that it's going to be enough moving forward. I will say this, though. There is no social movement that people expect more from than feminism, to be everything to everyone at all times. Um, that's not an excuse in any way, and yes, we do need to do better with our thinking and our language. And I admit that I'm the first person to say I'm still a work in progress when it comes to trans and non-binary issues because partly of my age, and it's so deeply ingrained that biology determines um, who can have children. And um, we just have to do better, but I don't know that feminism is going to be enough. I don't think we need a new movement, but I think that we need to have a companion movement that more adequately addresses some of these gender issues. Next question. Thank you. My name's uh, Meredith Doig, and I'm president of the Rationalist Society of Australia. It's part of the free thought movement, atheists, secularists, humanists, rationalists. You've spoken a lot about America, American culture, and American statistics. And one of the things that uh, is striking is how there's been criticism of the free, free thought movement in America that it's dominated by men, it's led by men, and there's a lot of criticism about that. I don't understand why that is the case. It seems to me that the free thought movement is precisely what women should be getting into. Christina, why is that the case? Why is it that a movement that should be led by progressive thinkers in fact, seems to be so dominated by men in the United States. Is it not in Australia? You have equal numbers of men and women, or? I, I don't think it's as, uh, as bad as it is in the United States, no. Yeah, I'm not sure why that is, but a lot of groups, atheists, it's more men, libertarians, it's more men, um, and the free thought organizations, the skeptics. It's it just, it, and, and the women are there, but just in smaller numbers. And you also find um, that it may be something about American culture and, and you know, the, if there's a lot of anti-intellectualism in general in America, so people that sort of get above it, you know, just find it, they find it themselves. And so maybe that just somehow more men have done that. But it's open, everyone's free to join it, but you, they just, I would like to see that too. I would like to see like civil liberties groups, uh, free speech groups. I would like to see feminists, you know, just at the forefront of that movement and, and preserving sort of traditional democratic freedoms. That seems to be so, that's been so important to women in the past. And yet, if you go to meetings on free speech, it's, it's more men than women. So I don't really know why it is, but I wish it weren't so. <laughs> Um, this is a question for Christina. Um, Christina, you often use the words hysterical and fainting couch feminist to, to describe anti-rape activists. Um, considering the extremely emotionally distressing nature of rape and its high PTSD rates, don't you think using pejorative language to describe activists' emotional distress is unnecessarily offensive? Um, even if you have issues with sexual assault statistics, can't you raise those issues without denigrating people for being upset about rape? 
Oh, well, I, yeah, when I use fainting couch... No, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me explain myself. I have used the phrase fainting couch feminism to describe not the rape activists. I'm talking about a style of feminism on the American campus that d insists on trigger warnings and, and safe spaces. And we had a debate, for example, among fem uh, two feminists came to, to uh, Brown University to debate... Well, they were debating uh, data on sexual uh, assault in the United States, and there was a libertarian woman, and there was a very feminist woman, and they just had the debate. Well, the students, uh, at the, uh, and with the cooperation of the college president, organized a safe space because they didn't want to hear the debate. And, okay, they don't have to go, but they also wanted a safe space, and in this safe room, at Brown University, these are college students, they had um, Play-Doh and coloring books and videos of puppy dogs and bubbles. And it was, to me, it was, as a feminist, it was just such infantilization in the name of protecting women. And it was, it, that's why I, I call it fainting couch. And, and it seems to me the opposite of what our feminist foremothers stood for. They thought of us as equal to men and strong, and we can handle a debate, and even with you know, statistics we don't agree with, and yet there's this infantilization of women on the campus, and that worries me as a feminist. Protecting people with PTSD is not infantilization. I'd like to... The next uh, trigger warnings, uh, there is just no evidence. In fact, it just a, 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 there's no evidence that these are effective. PTSD is a serious disorder, and there are treatments, but trigger warnings are not one of them. My question is for Roxanne. It sort of goes about saying that what you say resonates with a lot of, a lot of people, and you inspire a lot of people. Um, I guess my question is, when you share a stage with someone, when you share a platform with someone, mm -hmm. does that constitute a de facto endorsement of what they have to say to the extent that you're saying, I'm going to engage with you on a real level? No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, absolutely not. And I said this in Sydney, and it, it's, not, it's not in a disrespectful way. When I agreed to do this, I did not know who she was. And I, it, and I don't know that she knew who I was. That's, it's not a, I'm not being snarky. It's, this is the truth. Um, and then the Southern Poverty Law Center emailed me to say, you should know who you're sharing the stage with. And by that time, I had already agreed and signed the contract, and I didn't want to back out. And so, you know, it's not an endorsement, but I think it's a fair question. And I, I think that's just a smear. <laughs> <laughs> And such a rude thing, but, but this is the world we're in. We're, 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 people are just, that's contempt to talk about someone that way and uh, that, that you would just not even want to listen to me or share the stage because I'm such a dangerous person, but you, you didn't no, know about it. No, it's not that you're a dangerous person. It's that we're talking about things like sexual violence, women's safety, women's lives, trauma, and... 
you're very dismissive. I'm not and dismissive. I take it so seriously that I think we need good research. We need sound policies. And there's policies. plenty of good research out there. There are a lot of ideas that you hold. There and is. we can all listen to them. This is a crowd of adults who have all listened all night. We've been respectful and had a good conversation. But to suggest that it's not damaging to have certain ideologies is really problematic. It is damaging. And it's, in my opinion, anti-feminist. And if you want to be heard and respected, the converse has to be true as well. Well, That, that could, people it, disagree look, with we your have ideas. Different, we have different people, that, groups that we speak for. And you may not like my opinion, but there are many people that agree with me and who are not fanatics and not white supremacists or male supremacists or whatever, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's, who's, which is dissolving right now because of accusations of racism and sexism in the organization. But never mind that. I just think that it, 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 it worries me. What I, have see, what I saw in Sydney and what I see here is uh, this sort of uh, contempt and dismiss, dismissive attitude and, and just jeering at a, at a person that's just trying as much as they can to understand the world and to have constructive policies to diminish harm in the world and, a, and to be fair to people. And I try earnestly to do that. And I have many people that appreciate my work for that. And I just think it's dangerous even for feminism to become so much the property of people that just share what I think is a kind of extreme view about society and to leave the rest of us out. Anybody that's a moderate, anybody that's a libertarian, heaven forbid a conservative, or even a pro-life. I know pro-life feminist women, and I would invite them to the table. I don't agree with them, but we could, we could find common cause on certain important issues for women. So I want to have a feminism that's inclusive and, and intellectually and in every other way, and that would be a, you know, the complete intersectional feminism that would have women from across the spectrum. Next question, thank you. Hi, um, my question is for either of you, I guess. Um, going back to the conversation we had earlier about transgender athletes, um, the IOC's current guidelines say that uh, trans women have to have testosterone levels under 10 nanomoles per liter. Um, there are actually no guidelines for trans men at all, uh, no restrictions. Um, there's also a, a severe lack of scholarly work on trans masculinity. Uh, do you, either of you see this as something that soci about society that sees women as a protected class or are trans men seen as a group less threatening to the patriarchy? I think trans men are seen more as, are, are men and are, fall under the protections that men receive whereas women don't. And I think that's why we see trans women dealing with more r rules and regulations when it comes to the ISC. Oh, you're talking with, just with respect to sports, because I can imagine trans men have a lot of problems too. I mean, in society and with, you know, unfairness and, uh, you know, just not being accorded the same. Yeah, I was just kind of like, I use sport as an example, but sort of society generally, yeah. But I think we both said we're, we, we're learning like, along with everyone else. And the only thing I would hope for is um, that trans people, they don't all think alike, so you need to have the radicals, the conservatives, the moderates, they're all out there. 
and should have a voice. Shouldn't just be the, the group that's most vocal. Um, I, I would like to see that in feminism. I'd like to see that in the, in the trans movement. Thank you. Next question, please. Um, it's so wonderful to see both of you here and a huge fan of Roxanne's work. Thank you. Um, I just want to quickly say about what you said before, Christina, it's true that there's two sides to all of this, and I think that to your credit, at least you're here, mm. um, but the fact, you know, saying maybe there's two groups of people, some agree with you, some agree with Roxanne, it's obviously, you know, your opinion is the, the less popular in this this scenario, um, but, you know, where is the other half? The, the people that don't agree with what most people here do and the people that think there's misandry, they're not here wanting to engage in the conversation. You know, they're just the trolls on Facebook, and that's kind of the problem. You know, at least you're an academic, at least you're thinking about this. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I do speak at a lot of universities with big audiences where there are people that, a lot of people that agree with me and invite me to their to campuses, so. Mm. But they're not here. Well, so. they're not here. They are. <laughs> are some not of you many. here? Yeah, they're here. Yeah, many. hi. <laughs> Maybe my, they're just quieter. Yeah. yeah. Quieter for a reason. Um, my question is, I think. Uh, yeah. If we could, the question. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so going back to the idea that men um, are getting sort of railroaded and they're they're being, um, you know, treated really badly, unfairly, and all of this, um, and using examples like Aziz Ansari um, and the guy about that you said lost his job because he put something on Facebook. I mean, not even knowing that that story, I don't know who that guy was, but I'm assuming that. A lot of people knew who he was. What I see is that these men who um, have their careers destroyed and whatnot are famous men. And I think that the point is that if you have a really huge public profile, you do have more of a responsibility to do the right thing. And that, yes, if you do something really egregious um, and do something that might be a normal Saturday night, um, but you're a Zizan Sari, you are going to have to answer to that. And isn't that the point? That it's not going to ruin the everyday man's life, but it might destroy a famous man's life, and that's what you're dealing with if you're famous. Well, we're covering a lot of things here. With, with the thing about Aziz Ansari was that it was not clear that he'd done anything that was actionable, or he, he, the way, we only had her story of what happened on the date. He might have had another story, and he was besmirched and, and shamed and humiliated, and I, I just don't like to see that. I don't think many people do to see that done to another human being unless they're culpable and criminal and guilty and you know should be punished so those cases just that I just don't think we want to commit some wrongs uh, in, in order to get some glorious right when that right is not going to be there because if you choose these men it, these ends and you're going to use intimidation and you're going to use you know kangaroo courts or set people up for annihilation in, 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 you know, in journalism without any concern or protection for their well-being, then I think that your movement risks being a force for um, in, just injustice. And I don't want a feminism like that that, says, that, that is willing to make those sorts of, uh, is willing to become what it's supposed to be fighting, oppressive. Hi, I'm like, I'm super nervous, so really sorry. Um, I'm, this is for Christina. I'm one of the statistics that you were talking about earlier. I was a US university student who was raped on campus, and I was already strong and confident, 
and already walking around expecting to be raped all the time, which is the whole point behind this women learn your self-defense because someone's probably always about to rape you and that's what happened. Don't you think that in, in my case, someone wore me down and wore me down and wore me down until I eventually let him sleep with me? To me, that's rape. Don't you think that if he had have had the sort of education that says my body was not a trophy to eventually be conquered, don't you think that that kind of thing on a broader scale, that kind of conversation with young men would have prevented that more than me being prepared to be raped all the time? Because I was raped. So I, I just don't understand how I, I just want to know what you think the other option is, because the option of women being prepared to be raped doesn't work. Yeah, well, I do, don't, I'm not coming to you with my option. What I tried to bring, what I try to do in my work, I have a, a, a website, where, not a website, but I have a, a, a YouTube channel, The Factual Feminist, where I try, just try to bring the best data I can and what what works, what's, what doesn't, what's a myth, what's... And this research is uh, gaining momentum because people are just, they're throwing up their hands. They, they can't find anything as effective as that for the time being. They, they will tell you, and, and you can read this, you go to, it's in various journals. Uh, I mentioned Vox, and you can read about it in, in uh, New York Magazine, or you can go to the New England Journal of Medicine where they review the, the scholarship. Um, they are throwing up their hands and saying we don't have we, we, we don't yet have um, a cure for this malice and this cruelty and this predation. A hundred percent, we're getting better. Things have improved, and it. Uh, but there's no way. But you yet. can't just throw your hands up and no, say there's no, no solution. I'm no, saying nobody don't you think. No, I agree. Nobody said there was no you solution. You didn't answer my question. Don't you think that? the kind of thing that Roxanne is suggesting with new conversations, which is telling men not to rape rather than women not getting raped. Don't you think that that has to start somewhere? And if we start now with five-year-old boys and teaching them how to treat girls, that maybe they won't grow into monsters who rape women. I hope, I hope most parents do that and you don't. But they don't because we're getting raped. I hear your frustration, I, and there's there's no answer that is going to make it better, honestly. Oh yeah, no, no. Um, but you're right. Like, if all freshmen, regardless of gender, mm. were taken to a course, because right now it's all women. Let's focus on women, as if men don't experience sexual assault, and also as if non-binary people don't ex experience sexual assault. If we took all college students and taught them about enthusiastic content, consent and taught especially men who are the predominant predators of these crimes, what consent looks like, that a no is not the first step to a yes, which is what is the real issue here for so many, especially on college campuses. Like, we see it as the stepping stone 
oh, I will get three no's and then I'll get a yes. And like, no, maybe you got three no's and then she was just so fucking tired and wanted you to leave that she decided, well, I'm just going to do this, get it over with and deal with it afterwards. You know, if we could do something more on those lines, I think we would be a lot better. Absolutely. And hopefully we will get to that place and hopefully more college campuses will be able to do so without the media then reporting, oh, look at these poor college students who can't handle basic life. No, look at these college students who are learning how to do something differently than previous generations did. So we'll see. Thank you. Uh, this has to be the last question. I'm really sorry for everyone who's waiting. I know someone's already giving me <laughs> evil looks, but please. You're both extraordinary successful women. You have uh, best-selling books, your professors at uh, one of the best universities, uh, you have millions of people listening to your opinions. What do you attribute your success to? I work my ass off. <laughs> I, I work constantly. I work too much. Um, I also think that I bring a lot of nuance to my opinions and I'm always willing to demonstrate my fallibility. I think a lot of my writing shows my thought process. I basically show my math, and I think that's something that resonates with a lot of readers. Um, what, I, I was a college professor for many years and was reading, a, you know, keeping up with the scholarship on gender and began to see a drift away from just what I thought would resonate with most men and women. I, it seemed like I wrote a book called Who Stole Feminism because I felt the movement I dearly loved, which was about equality and, and, and just basic respect for, between the sexes, it seemed to be moving towards um, it, it was sort of left-wing, hard left politics. And that's possible, you can be a feminist to be hard left, but you can have other positions. So I felt it was losing its um, connection with a, a wide swath, uh, 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 you know, a, a spectrum of women. And I also knew from my studies, mainly of 18th century philosophy, that women had made the most progress when there was cooperation between more conservative and more radical women, when they worked together. There, there are patterns historically that in these rare periods, women get together and it it's becomes a sort of a golden age for, for change for women when they, they work together. And I began to see that not happening. So long story short, I just started to write about it. I just started to point out what I saw. And it, initially it wasn't comfortable for me and it upset my mother, uh, who was uh, is very, very feminist and, and uh, very liberal and you know, she was so concerned. And people are calling you conservative and she was upset. And, you know, and I, 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 but I just couldn't help writing about what I saw and then I found a lot of people appreciated. And I've met, I, I lost some friends when I started criticizing academic, you know, hardline, what I considered hardline academic feminism. But I made a lot of wonderful new friends, so um, I gained, you know, some wonderful friendships and some professional success just by speaking what I saw as the truth. Um, I want to say thank you so very much for these two events that you have partaken in. And uh, Melvin, you've been wonderful. Please help me. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> two women. <laughs>